think the reason I've written a book about stigma is because I precisely wanted to show commonalities between different types of classificatory systems that dehumanize and devalue people. Welcome to Surviving Society. This season's broad theme is... Imagining a new normal. Towards social justice. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are absolutely buzzing to be joined by one of our favourite people, Professor Professor Imogen Tyler, author of Revolting Subjects, The Sociology of Stigma, and what we're going to be talking about today... Stigma, the machinery of inequality. I th- I've also I've missed loads of your other accolades there, Imogen. I'm really sorry about that. But if you don't know, get to know, as we say. Super cool. Super cool. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm not called super cool that often as a middle-aged mum from Lancashire, but uh it's very nice to feel the love from you both. Hello again. I'm really excited because last time you came on the podcast for a mini sode and we were at the British Sociological Association. I was presenting a paper, so I didn't actually get to chat with you. But Imogen, when I came back, you and Tiso had created this bond built on a love of Star Trek, Chinese history. History, China, history everything. General. Imogen knows. She knows. She understands it all. She sees it all. Uh, I, think, I think me and Tiso, uh, I've got a lot in common. Let's put it that way. <laughs> We have found a bond immediately between ourselves in terms of our interests in the world, our interests in the history of ideas and the way we think. And also how we use popular culture to think, I think. I think that's, yeah. that's something that we both do. We're both thinking about big ideas, but we're, we use, we're often processing that through popular culture and stuff like that to think about things. But also it makes it relatable because I think sometimes... And that's what I like about you. Sometimes these concepts are so high-minded and people kind of, especially like philosophy and history, it sounds quite dry. But when you relate it to something that people know, like Star Trek, boom, (laughs) you're in there. Exactly. I guess it would be good to sort of roll back to when we saw you presenting a paper from Stigma and the Machine of Inequality, just how powerful that was. And you were talking about austerity, heavy influences of black sociology in your work. And I remember just being sat there thinking, oh my God, Imogen is telling sociology what it needs to hear. I feel like with that paper, you not only tracked how important austerity has been, over the past sort of 10 years in shaping how we think of how stigma is enacted and imprinted on our bodies and all this you also made really clear how sociology and academia more broadly has got a structural whiteness issue and I don't know if that's something that you necessarily intended but it was just amazing how you got to that point of then at the British Sociological Association and then writing this absolutely incredible book which everyone needs to read 
I'm so excited about it. Can you tell? Oh, thanks so much. It's so kind of you to say that. How did I get here? Well, that's a long story. And it's actually in one of the chapters of this new book, I talk a little bit about my own story chapter called Shameless on the on the eyelids. Mm-hmm. Uh, where I talk about kind of a little bit about why I'm interested in stigma and it came from a friend said to me why are you writing a book about stigma and it and I kind of ended up doing this project that went alongside a kind of more formal scholarly project which is researching all of the writing and history about stigma and trying to think about how reconceptualize stigma as a theory of power stigma as power and that's really the core thing that I do in this book but actually I also started to think about my own history and relationship to stigma particularly and in that chapter I talk about this how I came to sociology or first encountered sociology as a young woman which was I was actually a philosophy student at the time and it was actually I got invited to a dinner party and I write about this in the chapter of an anthropologist's flat and ended up watching this them um, show this slideshow of their PhD project that they'd done in Papua New Guinea and it was a kind of like a real colonial slideshow of the anthropologists in the field and I, I'd never encountered anthropology or sociology at that point in my life, I was about, you know, 22 or something like that. I ended up talking to this anthropologist afterwards, trying to make sense of what this experience. And she told me that her supervisor had done the PhD project in this village where I grew up, uh, this remote village uh, in the Yorkshire Dales. And he'd done it undercover. And so he'd gone into my village uh, in the Yorkshire Dales and done this undercover ethnography. And I was so shocked. And I thought that that you know, I had no, I'd no sense of what sociology was or anthropology where it was as disciplines, but I was so shocked that someone could go into a community and secretly research it. And then I found the book that this anthropologist had written about the village that I grew up in, and he changed the name of the village. But of course, I recognised everybody in it. It's a very small place. And I was so shocked by... That, that that was allowed <laughs> um, and it was this real experience of kind of class stigma that I experienced in reading that book and understanding my positionality so I returned to that in this book because now I've got all of this capital this cultural capital I'm a professor of sociology and the head of a sociology department I've got a successful career and I wanted to return to my own personal history and think about my first encounter uh, as a kind of younger working class woman from a rural community encountering the anthropological gaze and the sociological gaze in that way and what that meant. I put that in the book to try and make sense of that, what I call draw on uh, Du Bois's work I think about that as a kind of double consciousness that the stigmatized have or these these encounters with stigma give you where you see from the perspective almost of the norm or the dominant and of the stigmatized at the same time and what that means how you can use that double perspective to do kind of really important critical work if you deploy it as a method uh, or a strategy yourself because kind of speaking to that experience Imogen, I think what's quite interesting is once you become aware of that gaze right it changes you you realize how people 
at that level, I kind of understood it as, first of all, as people are reading, other people are reading you that you didn't even know, you weren't even aware. Yeah. The next layer that had a system's reading you. And you're thinking, yeah. well, I thought I was just Tiso existing, but you, you're not. That's a shock, really, when you first discover that. It's an unbelievable shock, and it can be a transformational shock. <laughs> uh, and it was definitely one of those pivoting moments for me in my career that stayed with me, almost as a, as a but in a weird way, as a shameful thing. So I think <laughs> writing about it was a way to understand why I experienced that as shameful, to find myself in this dual position so yeah although I put that chapter at the end because I wanted to kind of explain a little bit about my own positionality in relationship to the book which is quite an historical book I wanted to explain how that dual positionality has shaped me as a kind of scholar and as a person kind of stays with me and I started also to do this kind of like huge amount of ancestry research and family history <laughs> and all kinds of things. I think T so laughing, mm. it's the sort of thing I imagine he yeah. would do too. <laughs> yeah. Where, yeah, you know, but you, you know, because I'm like super, I'm a super researcher, like the research bit is the bit mm. I love. So I can't stop mm. researching. So when my friend said to me, why are you interested in stigma? I went immediately back to that encounter that I tried to kind of bury a bit, this encounter deep shameful class stigma that I experienced when I discovered that um, about this anthropological study of the place where I'd lived but I also started trying to track my own that almost opened up my own kind of internal closet of stigma and shame (laughs) to, to process that and I put a lot of that in the book and I've been careful about what how much of that I've put in the book but I wanted to put some of it in to kind of orientate the reader to the positionality that I, I was writing from and, and to explain something about my own methods as well, my own methodology or my own critical relationship with sociology as a discipline. So my first encounter with sociology is one that was already stigmatising and taught me something about the dangers of sociological methods, that they reproduce stigma very often, rather than actually challenge it. So that was really important to put in, I think. One of the consistent themes across the book, Imogen, is that I think two things. I think it's care, but also that you put those experiences that are both lived and personal to you, albeit you don't put everything in, which I think is important for you, but it's something that we see consistently not done in sociology. So we don't speak, people in the past haven't spoken about their positionality and how they relate to the subject and what they mean in, in relation to the subject and their understanding or lived experience of the subject. And I really feel like you speak amazingly to that in terms of how Goffman conceptualizes stigma and you talk about I'm sure we'll go into a bit more detail on this but like how you talk about him writing about stigma whilst at the same time not recognizing the stigma that's literally appearing and happening in his own classroom. That point you kind of made Imogen in the book where he's kind of using people's personal narratives right like he's using his narratives and there's a sense of like he claims it so because I'm such a big fanboy right so I'm reading some of your other stuff what we call it it's called patient porn where people talk about their mental health stories right and it's yeah. a big thing and people are volunteering something that's quite traumatic but how these are being weaponized and used by corporations in fact that have no link like so for example when i worked a lot i was working a lot in the city so i i know black rocket investments right that's a that's an yeah. investment house yeah when i when i first saw that i was like are you insane 
Like they don't care. All they care about is the bottom line, but they're involved in something that's about personal care, development, mental health, well-being. Listen, I had no well-being when I worked in the city. They didn't care. But when I saw that, it's how, like, I think the phrase you use is the gaze upwards, right? When you have that stigma to look up and who's doing that and why. Yeah. Just to go back, so we're leaping around, uh, as we always do. Really important for me was to say, one thing that sociology tends to do sometimes is look at things like it's on a static plane of the social now. Goffman is a particularly does that because his his whole theory is about micro sociology or everyday interaction. So he's in a particular plane of the space of everyday interaction or the social now. And what I wanted to do to intervene and was to say in, in relation to the stigma concept is to say to what to understand stigma and to re-theorise it as a concept that I think is more useful for us. We've got to look up, as Tiso says, to where the interests are, where stigma is coming from, who's producing it, why. Think about stigma as a form of power, as a structural and structuring form of power that's produced from above, but also look back and look to history. that We can't understand anything without looking up and back. <laughs> They're the two things. So, so for me, you know, it's it, without that, and I think I've described that, you know, a few times in the book. Stigma is a kind of flat concept. It's a it's a toothless concept until we start to look up to power, to where it's being produced by who, why, by media, by corporations, by vested interests, by government. You know, this is the machinery that I talk about of stigma. And then to look back to history and to see how actually things that appear new are actually very often reconfigurations of actually historical stigmas uh, as well. That stigmas reactivated. It's very often not new. So the welfare grounder, you know, that isn't a new figure that appeared with austerity or something. That's such. That's an historical figure that appears with the formation of the state. So you've got to go back each time and look at the different ways and where that figure appears, who's producing that figure, why, what work it's doing. Um, So looking at these different historical figures is key. So looking up and back is how I saw what I was doing. While a lot of social psychology and sociology stigma to me feels very much that it's caught within a a more of a one-dimensional plane of interactions, where stigma is produced in interactions between people in the everyday. That matters too, but that isn't the intervention that I was particularly interested in. Although I do start with, you know, starting with Stephanie's story, I do start in that place, but I try to show immediately how her experiences of stigma. So Stephanie's a story of somebody that I made friends with working with the Morecambe Bay Poverty Truth Commission, who um somebody who's living in poverty and has been affected by austerity. Starting with her story was a way to show how her story isn't a story of just those that that stigma she experiences when she's interacting with a welfare benefits person. Her story, she describes it to me, is about how the media's producing stigma and how that's shaping her experience. But it's also about history and the history of the figures of the scrounger that are coming to bear on her in that moment. Just for the purpose of the listeners as well, Imogen, like who haven't read the book yet, and hopefully after this podcast you will get it if you haven't already, Stephanie's story, for me, particularly as someone that comes from a working class background, although I'm firmly middle class now, comes from a working class background, 
mainly single mothers as well. That narrative, Stephanie's narrative was so, so familiar. And I have to admit, when I read that introduction, I cried my eyes out because what I think you do really well, and I think it's really hard to do this as academics, is talk about the different things that happen in life, how those make up an overall experience. What I mean by that is how you you basically list all the different things that happen to Stephanie and how that ends with her being outside of the job centre, being on the street, her blood dripping on the benefits paper to be able to get her money to sign on. But all different things have happened before then. People have died. She's lost her job. Like, sometimes poverty is framed as something which is just binary and it's just not it's so many different things at once or happening over time and I think yeah. that that is it's just yeah. it's written so beautifully and powerfully Imogen, when I was reading your stuff and and it kind of plays into some stuff I've been reading at the moment so like when you talk about the idea of stigma being centered in something that's trans-historical right it, it extends through time and so I was looking at stuff like uh, Stuart Hall and Paul Gilroy, this idea that these things are not bounded by a certain space, that they exist over certain over time and it changes in different contexts and acting people in different ways. But concept that's ever evolving, but it's that leverage who's pulling those strings. Yeah. I think you get that when I've been reading like for well, again again about cultural cultural theories who are producing like touching on similar ideas, right? When I'm reading Bell Hooks, I see what you've written and it's, there's a similarity that these things are who's doing the looking and what it means to look at someone and what that look does. Yeah. I suppose one question is why is stigma for me? And I guess what one thing that connects all my work, I was thinking about this, is that I am interested in what I call the psychosocial. So the reason that it was important to me to go to stigma and kind of reclaim it or rework it as a concept is because it, it stigma is something that happens, that's pushed on you or marks you from outside. And the book's very much about how stigma is something that's inscribed upon the body. It's a, it classifies you or marks you, whether whether that's literally or you know symbolically, symbolic forms of violence. But it's also something that inculcates experiences of shame. And um, so although the book isn't about shame or the, the emotional impact of stigma, it's a threshold concept for me that it works between the social and the psychological. And I, I wanted that to me, what is why? Because what, what happens if you're stigmatised? You can defend yourself against it. It's not necessarily going to make you feel ashamed. And there are ways we might work to think about resistance to stigma together collectively and people do resist it. But the reason it's important to me is because it changes you, it changes somebody, it, it disables people. Uh, yeah. You know, we could all probably talk about experiences of feeling stigmatised that have disabled us in our lives and, and with that we've had to work through or deal with, that it is a powerful force for but disabling people because it's an emotion, has emotional impacts of people on their inside self as well. When I was younger, I felt that stigma of being black, right? So, yeah, and because there's a shame to it. So what the shame does, it prevents you, it silences you because I can't talk to it about anyone. So I'm having to work this out myself, like what it meant to be black. So all my friends are white and I'm thinking to myself, like, who do I speak to? So I remember when I asked my grand, I think I was about seven, I said, is God white or black? My name just ignored me because I was annoying her. But it's trying to understand, you're, you're grappling with these massive problems, but no one really talks about them, right? But it's yeah. that internal monologue that you have 
But that's that shame. And it's so powerful, but no one speaks of it because one, it marks you out. And already you feel in the kind of effects of stigma. Don't you feel definitely. like, T, though, what Imogen does quite well, and although I do definitely agree with you, that shame of of being hyper-visible and the shame associated with blackness, all those things are so real. But I feel like what Imogen does really well is talk to the fluidity of responses to that shame. In the case of the American Civil Rights Movement, like, black people, black students, like collectivizing and using that stigma to create power and to fight the system that case study that you give about black radicals like the civil rights movement all that stuff you can see that across history like where people have been stigmatized and oh my god one of the best things you do and i really need you to talk about this is how you link the black civil rights movement to disability studies that is incredible like oh my god (laughs) that is absolutely amazing but just seeing how stigma Although it can invoke shame, it can also invoke collectivity and fighting against the system and, importantly, power. Exactly. That's exactly right. So once once we can start to once... Well, once we understand stigma, and, and racism for me is a form of stigma, yeah, if it's actually, I think, the primary form, and I think that becomes clear in the book. Once we start to think about uh, stigma as a form of power, we can start to think about resistance and and how shame is an individualizing response to stigma. But actually, once we start to start think think about it as a form of power, we can start to think about collective political responses to stigma, where the shame is spoken, and the speaking of the shame allows it to be collectivized and allows then social action or resistance to happen. Um, so that's precisely why once we start to think about stigma as power, we can start to think about resistance to stigma in a kind of radical way. But yeah, I'm surprised I'm talking about this. I'm surprised to find myself talking about the psychosocial or emotional aspects, because I'd say another thing that's really important for me is that I haven't really gone down that big kind of affective turn in sociology. I've sort of resisted that. I've wanted to not do that. But nevertheless, there is something at the core of my work that is about the emotional and the kind of psychopolitical uh, that's, I think, in this book. Um, but I'm surprised. Something about being with you two is no. making me feel, <laughs> you make me feel yeah, so I, emotional. I, but I, um, I, re- I like that you don't necessarily always go into that affect stuff because your work for me, Imogen, is always about a call to arms. It's like, right, this is a situation. This is what's happening. What has been done to fight it? And what do we need to do now? Which is often, yeah. has in the past in the canon, been missing. Like, it's it's very much about observation. What are the everyday social interactions that yeah, Goffman talks about? And, being, and you describe as sort of like toothless. I think that is amazing. And one of your critiques I think that really stands out about Goffman is that lack of attention to how we defeat stigma you know I think one of the striking things about going back and reading so Goffman published his book in 1963 so what I do in the chapter there's one chapter of of this my new book on stigma that's dedicated to re-situating Goffman's work um, in the context of 1963 and what's happening um, in the US when he's when he's researching and writing that book. Um, so it resituates and rereads his work through the lens of the civil rights movement 
in that specific period and and in particular the birth of the black power movement that's happening as he's writing almost literally and we see as you mentioned I think briefly before Chantel how it even bursts into his own classroom in in, in Berkeley as he's challenged by a black student uh, in the class saying well what's what what's your work that's all very that's all very interesting Professor Goffman but what's the point of it or something like that uh, which I came across so um, so it tries to re, you know, and then that means extending that chapter. What I try and do in that chapter is think, how do we, you know, Goffman's seen if in a way as part of the canon of sociology, but actually what we need to do is extend what we think of as sociological to this, of all of this other writing that's, ha- that's also happening at the time in 1963, which is just as important sociologically, uh, which includes... Uh, a huge body of uh, black sociological and activist writing. So it's a kind of exercise in citation that this chapter as well, that, that, that's that got a very long citation list. And the point was to foreground and cite black sociological writing um, and to minimise the citation of the canon, if you like, in relationship to stigma as well. So there was, it was a deliberate kind of writing exercise for me to do, to do it in that way. When I was reading your work, Imogen, and like I tried to separate the kind of emotional from the kind of theoretical. Like I think there's there's a close interrelation here. So when you make you start off and you talk about someone like Emmett Till, and yeah. that's that's the physical reality, right? That's the reality of stigma for people yeah. how it's felt. But from that reality, we generate a whole theory, right? So yeah. and that, but that theory has always been well in, in terms of the canon and academia deemed as unworthy. It reflects something that the canon can never speak to or explain correctly. The kind of ideals of the Enlightenment, the ideals of Western democracy have failed, right? But it cannot reconcile itself to that. So when you read the book and you attach it to something so powerful as the everyday and then link it to the system in a kind of way of theory, for me, that's what I want to do in academia, to tell people that this is what happens in real life, my life, right? But equally... Mm. This is what happens at, at that level, at that abstraction, where we kind of, especially as academics, well, how we're trained to be is where we operate all the time. How I'm trained to be is operating at, at the abstract. And when I was a A-level student, I was very pretentious at the abstract level, say, but I didn't know nothing about real people's lives. And I'm saying making yeah. statements that are that are quite obnoxious and horrible and at worst, violent, because I don't know what I'm talking about. I haven't lived it. And then when I start thinking about my own positionality, I'm thinking, wow, that's, I'm kind of criticising my own people, my own life. I'm policing myself in a, such a violent way. And when you realise that, you're thinking, right, okay. So it's that kind of thing we're linking the real to the yeah. theory. And it's who, it's who in that gets to inhabit the space of the theorist. Uh, I think Chantel and I have had this conversation before, actually. You know, what's really striking, you know, is that Du Bois was a sociologist and, you know, been around a lot longer than Goffman and uh, is one of the first sociologists, in fact, establishing the discipline, a black American sociologist. And, And all of his work is so much of it is about stigma. And yet you never see him written about as a theorist of stigma or in that way. Or, or take someone like Goffman writing that in '63, the same year James Baldwin is writing The Fire Next Time, which is a set of two mm-hmm. essays. I mean, James Baldwin beautifully theorizes the stigma of black experience mm-hmm. in the US early 1960s. Why isn't he counted as a sociological theorist? 
So I, I kind of, it's partly a challenge saying, you know, part of what we have to do when we're decolonizing the curriculum, decolonizing disciplines that we've, these disciplines we've inherited, is we have to rethink who counts within that, what counts as knowledge and, and who's, yeah. and, and that includes recounting who's a theorist, I think, what counts as theory. You know, why isn't Stephanie, who opens this book, understood as a theorist of stigma? She is. And she offers her story and her account of stigma to us. So it's it's challenging that kind of idea as theory is somehow higher up or abstract up there. We need to understand theories embodied and lived in everyday experience, latent within, not outside of. I think you can kind of see that. I think you could sense that in this, especially in this current period, where you see a, a pushback against epistemology, against knowledge, effectively, right? And Imogen, I spend my life arguing with my mates, saying that like, you just have to read, no stuff. You can see it in this pushback where people are pushing back against established forms of knowledge, right? Questioning what knowledge is and what it means to be affected by that knowledge. And yeah. in its most kind of like oblique form is like this kind of thing about 5G and the virus. People can state there's a sense that this knowledge is wrong or it, well, they feel it's wrong and they're challenging because who says this? Since this pandemic started and lockdown started, I inundated with my friends with conspiracy theories because they're trying to reconstitute that knowledge, trying to understand how, why is it affecting me in a different way? And they, they have a sense that this, well, I don't think they kind of conceptualise it as stigma, but they have a sense that this thing that's been pushing down on them has been wrong. And they, they're looking for other forms of knowledge to kind of push back. And unfortunately, the forms of knowledge they're getting is from Dave down the pub. Dave yeah. is shocking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it is, you know, knowledge is a site. I mean, knowledge is power, I was saying, that are holding up a sign. But it's a site of struggle. What counts as knowledge, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. that is what part of the struggle we're in. It is that struggle about what counts who counts what's valued who's valued and that's another I think part of what I try and do in this book is try and understand and this is drawing on Bev Skeggs's work but trying to really think about stigma as a political economy that's about the valuing of people and lives and the devaluing I mean at its heart stigma is a concept about dehumanization isn't it it's about it's about it's a force of power that dehumanizes people it devalues people and it says what you know it's trying to uh, organize what counts and doesn't count and we're really seeing that at the yeah. moment, aren't we, in terms of mm-hmm. the absolute inequalities exposed by the the health inequalities and social and political inequalities exposed by the effects of this virus in the UK. Whose lives count, whose lives don't count, and how the state is organising and how capital organises to reproduce inequalities in response to what uh, a pandemic uh it's extraordinary to see it and the role of stigma politics in that process is Imogen, i wondered if we could just on that note as well return to the production of knowledge and who counts as a knowledge maker and in particular when you're talking about goffman's conceptualization of stigma and one of the things that i found when i was reading the book is I absolutely loved reading the book, but I found it frustrating how much sociology and social science more broadly loves these blokes. And one of the things that I find upsetting is that we it's it sometimes gets contested when I want to talk to 
academics or students or peers about the fact that even at the time of Goffman theorising stigma and the way that it can be used to talk about racism, he didn't actually think that someone like me was a human being. Like, do you know, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's really like it reminds me of an episode we did with Brianna Walcott, who says really affluently, like, the Enlightenment was not my Enlightenment. And it just seems like yeah. so often, and this is what I think you do so, so well in this book, these theorists, although they're really important in framing some of our ways of thinking about society, like, how much can we use these people as integral parts of the canon? If, as you say, if the black reader of this book is recognising that they're not actually, they're yeah. not actually human. I think you say that in the book. My sort of deliberations here are a little bit like academia. My existential feelings about academia more broadly is that, like, it, we are often met with hostility when we want to challenge the way these things came about. And I feel like, and I don't know if you remember, Imogen, when you were talking about stigma at British Sociological Association, someone in the audience asked you why you hadn't used Bourdieu and why you basically insinuated, why have you used black sociology? Why have you not used Bourdieu? And you basically said, because he's been used enough. (laughs) What you're trying to do or what I'm trying to do specifically here, but I suppose it's a general, it's a more general move that I'm trying to do is if you put the concept Instead of allowing that concept to be free-floating, Goffman's version of stigma as though it's detached from any historical reality, once you reposition that context in the moment of its history and formation and you start to read that text closely as something that's written in 1963 in the context of what's happening and to understand it and read it through the lens of kind of black sociology and black activism in that period something happens to it that that it's re-anchored in the moment of its own making it's a very feminist sort of move to make in terms of feminist work on the canon and standpoint theory and all of those sort of methodological attempts to say we can't we have to have to de-abstract concepts and place them back in their the history of their formation then there may be something useful we want to keep from it or we may come away as I did in this case and say actually Du Bois is the person that we need to read to understand stigma not Goffman and that was my conclusion you know James Baldwin is a theorist of stigma power not Goffman so he's he's much more useful for me so but Something else could have happened, and that could have been that I'd come out and say, actually, what's really important about Goffman is X or Y. There is one thing that's really important about Goffman's book on stigma for me, that he says at the end of that book, that the reason it's a useful concept, and he doesn't use the word intersectional, I don't think, but the reason it's useful is it allows us to hold or think things in common. I think the reason I've written a book about stigma is because I precisely wanted to show commonalities between different types of classificatory systems that dehumanise and devalue people. So although racism is a predominant form, and quite a lot of the time you could say, well, that's racism, not stigma, or you could say racism and stigma are completely intertwined at various points in the book. It's not just racism. There's other types of marking classification at work and they misogyny is another theme that runs through the book. 
that they're entangled with each other. So for me, that's one thing I took from Goffman is that his belief that stigma is an important concept because it describes something that changes as a form historically, but forms of marking classifying bodies that shift and change over time, but nevertheless hold things in common with each other. And in a way, I think this is a book that's concerned with commonalities, which is also perhaps unfashionable rather than just differences, but it's a book about commonality. I can't believe you're saying this, Imogen. This is what Tiso's literally been saying to me every day for like the past six months. Me and Tiso, separated at birth. <laughs> Uh, he said to me, called me up. He was like, "Listen, Chantel, we need some commonality." Like, obviously, it's something that people have said for a, a long time, but more sort of being more forthright with it is something that you've been talking about in that team. But yeah, I, as you're just talking, the image, and I was thinking, like, when Chantel was saying, like, how can we use the canon? And like, when you held up that that side, knowledge is power. I can get something from everyone. So, like, we talked spoke about the Borg, right? Yeah. I take everything from everyone, and I can produce something new and. I guess if we're speaking academically, that speaks to the work of Stuart Hall, Paul Gilroy, this idea that something's always being created in the state of becoming, right? Yeah. So everything has a worth, right? So I know some of these people I read about, yeah, they're arseholes, right? <laughs> but they, it personally sometimes, but sometimes they have something important to say, yeah. right? And I take, take something out of that and I can yeah. be critical of that. And I think sometimes people are scared to do that. Like I can be critical of someone in the canon, yeah. But it doesn't mean they're, they're worthless. It doesn't mean I'm kind of being deriding their work. It means I'm doing what we're trained to do, right, as academics, yeah. being critical. And I think that's one of the key things as academics right now is important to speak to our people who haven't had that formal training about being being critical and saying to them, OK, there's nothing wrong with having a different point of view or say that this is wrong or this is inadequate. But it's trying to say we can work to work, make something a lot better. So this is what I'm trying to say at this current moment to my friends. Right now is opportunity to make things better. So, but you have to, to do that. You have to be critical and say, well, where's it going wrong? So it doesn't mean throwing away capitalism because no, there might be something useful there. But it means having that ability to be robustly say, listen, that hasn't worked, man. Let's try something new. And I'm trying to say to people, I think all along the podcast is that we've done the same, we know how this turns out. We've done it so many times. Let's try something different because, like, it, it, obviously it's not working. I can't believe we haven't spoken about capitalism yet. It's literally at the heart, like, the way you talk about stigma and how we need to locate it in both power and capitalism, I just, it's just absolutely brilliant. Like, particularly the way you name names, name structures, name governments and how important they have been for the machine. So as well as it being like, I mean, in the let's just let's just bring it back to the, let's bring it to the global pandemic for one second. Like the the stigma machine is reliant on my neighbour down the road telling on the single mum for not wearing a mask while she's going out. It's reliant on the Daily Fail like telling us whose fault it is oh it's black people's fault that they're more likely to get COVID-19 and then it's the government at the top not providing adequate PPE like all these different things together like create your exceptionally conceptualized stigma machine yeah and, st- and these machines I mean without going off on one with Tiso on the Borg but these these machines <laughs> you know they they're changing all you know they're changing forms all the time, aren't they? So I think the real danger of the moment that uh, that we're in now, we're in a crisis, 
uh, we're about to go into the biggest economic recession that the world has probably ever known in terms of a crash. And what we know accompanies that is is the construction or formation of these stigma machines, yeah, that they, they're going to be cranked up, that these machines that are already there, these historical machines will be cranked into action in order to allow the state um, corporations to continue to extract labour and value out of this crisis and and in order to govern people. How how do you govern people in a crisis? You know, you need to use fear, uh, you need to use scapegoating and blame. So we'll see all of these things. And it's very frightening. I mean, Hungary is a really good example so what happened immediately that the virus arrived in Europe is the Hungarian Prime Minister. Viktor Orban. You know, he immediately had an emergency bill that removed all kinds of rights from people, rights of freedom. Um, except in Poland, they immediately tried to withdraw women's rights to abortions. So immediately there's a crisis. You know, you'll, you you get these seizures of power, the removal of freedom starts to happen, and then these sort of, you'll kick in. So we've had this little, we're in this little interim period at the moment where we're all supposed to join together to collectively, which we do are extremely grateful for our key workers who are risking their lives yeah but in a way we're in that little moment I mean it's VE day celebration today and it's got this nationalist thing going on yeah that we're supposed to be grateful and well but that wrote this moment will pass very quickly into a kind of moment of stigma politics will start to play out and that's what's frightening and this is what we have to be ready this is why we need to look at history we need to be ready by knowing what's happened before because the repetitions will be there we can be ready for what's coming we can be ready to meet that stigma politics if we know uh, what its forms might take it's interesting that you use hungary as an example because when you look at orban's rhetoric right so he's positioned hungary as to be that the, the bastion the kind of bulwark against the kind of contagion from the east so yeah. they kind of paid to the battle when they, they kind of I can't remember it's the 17th century is a massive battle between the Turkish empire and Poland was involved and it was the defense of the west from the east and that yeah. positioned Hungary as that place and the idea oh, of can you use that as an example yeah that's it that's yeah, he's, yeah. he's going back to, I can't remember, 16 something or the other but it's, it's the before. idea that yeah, he's used it before. But it's it's a powerful thing at the moment. The idea, and if you speak of the virus as contagion. Yeah. So, but that bodies or people from outside the East are seen as contagion. Like, it's the yeah. spread. The worst thing you can do to, in a nationalist rhetoric, is to make something impure. So I was reading a bit of a Mary Douglas, Purity in Danger. So the idea that this is, we are pure. And this is the kind of narrative that's being spoken about. And so I looked at a World Health Organization report from last year because they do lots of reports on pandemics and epidemics, just as a case study. And they ran a uh, risk scenario. And the worst case risk scenario was what they called the global fortress. The idea of contagion was so powerful that governments turned in on themselves and mobilised all the things of stigma to make sure that keep people out. That enables me to have more coercive measures because it's in your own safety that I do this to you. So it, like when you're saying that, I'm like, that. Imogen knows. She knows history. She knows. 
She can see it. Yeah, I mean, it's history, but there's then there's new things. There are some new things, and the new things are really digital technology, yeah. so aren't they? So it's surveillance, the surveillance systems that have been brought in ostensibly protect us will be used ostensibly, well, will be used to control us. So so what may be brought in, you know, as an app that's there to track and trace a virus one day will, will become yeah. used as a policing mechanism. We know that that will be used in a way that is uneven uh, and disproportionate in its impacts upon particular mm-hmm. people. But what's interesting is how that's being translated into the current pop culture, right? So how people are reading this, so some people, they're reading this contact tracing as in a kind of biblical sense, the mark of the beast, right? So everyone's being watched because you have an app that is being inscribed on you, right? So you're being you're being forced to do. So a lot of my friends are talking in terms of like, I'm not going to get this virus because they're going to track me or they're going to be able to follow me. And I'm trying to say to them, like, okay, that's quite interesting how you've kind of reverted back to full beliefs. But it's understanding that kind of that genealogy of where your beliefs come from about stigma and who's who's watching who. So they kind of interpreted that as like, basically, this is a biblical sign thing. This is what was always coming. That's so interesting. It's mad. It's mad. And like, like these guys now, they're quoting scripture to me, quoting scripture. And they've never been to church in maybe 25 years. It's insane but what's quite interesting is now i was looking at that contact tracing thing so there's a debate between apple and google who between them control like 98 percent of the world's mobile and mobile technology and phones and the government so who would you rather have tracking you these centralized private companies or the state it's not a good choice is it i'd want neither but i don't think you can separate the two things that either can you the state and, no, and corporations really. yeah. i mean i think they mm. more or less are the same thing or or very closely uh intertwined with each other so i think that is the question it, it, i think one of the key questions is about the relationship between uh surveillance capitalism which will intensify in this moment, how that becomes intertwined with what I would call stigma, stigma politics and how that plays out. How do, we, how do you resist that? Because we do need also to track and trace this virus <laughs> to recover from it socially. So it's really complicated stuff. No, no. I think that's true. Hall like, speaks about this in like you know, crisis hegemony, right? So how do, when there's a crisis now, what am I looking to do? Like, is it through consent? No, like I'm looking to crank up the coercion, man, yeah. to passing through. And I kind of linked it to, I, we spoke about earlier in our first reflection, Chantel, like when I spoke about the Roman Republic, when they gave Julius Caesar all that power because of a crisis. And they done it many times before, Sulla, but it always ended up in disaster. So Sulla, Julius Caesar, it was always a problem once you kind of, you cranked up that coercion to such an extent that it causes destabilization. Most integral chapters in the book, Imogen, is for now in particular about the um, stigma regime of austerity. And one of the things yeah. that I've been thinking about more recently, particularly thinking about your work, Akugo Evazulu, and how much people have been talking about how desperate the situation is with austerity right now. Like, it is, we're on the floor with it. And this couldn't have come yeah. at a worse time. And like, I just, yeah. I, I just can't wrap my, I just can't even wrap my head around like how vicious the cuts have been. Like you even talk about like Philip Alston coming to, coming to the UK, like the United Nations special rapporteur and, 
and talking about the extreme poverty that you witnessed just two years before we're in this just we're just we were never ready yeah. we were never ever going to be ready for this and I just can't even fathom what this is going to be like for, for people that do not have social economic capitals yeah it's terrifying and you know one of the things I do in my life is I work in my local community as part of what's called Morecambe Bay Poverty Truth Commission and I also work on a kind of national network of Poverty Truth Commissions and they're kind of grassroots organisations that that try and kind of bear witness to and organise around poverty in local communities and in this lockdown what's so you know complicated is that you know that that those normal even those normal activisms that have been carrying on to help people get through are kind of compromised partly but like in my own local community here there's massive work going on now to feed huge amounts of people huge efforts are going in to sort of crank up emergency food Mm. aid in, in in the local community but it's it's outrageous that we live in the eighth richest country in the world and we're in this extreme situation where people cannot feed themselves or their children. And and, and this was happening before the pandemic and is now massively increased by it. But look at the unemployment that's going to come now. Yeah. You no, know, I, we cannot go on. Talking. We cannot go what? on. But you see, when like when you kind of kind of explain that, I was reading some of your stuff earlier, and it kind of speaks to this. Like you said, since 2010, the British elites have engaged in an intensive program of welfare stigma production, reanimating long histories and figures of undeserving poor to justify austerity. In particular, the promotion of of the idea that a large underclass of people are trapped in conditions of stupefying dependency on the state handouts has been central to the mechanism through which public consent for draconian cuts to services has been produced. So. They've convinced us like to police ourselves, right? To feel shame for your own people. Yeah. And that's one of the most horrible things. So when I'm talking about people about watching those like the poverty porn programs and working class people have been convinced and they've been so harsh to their own people yeah. and saying that like, you don't deserve this, but it's it's horrendous. It's horrendous. And so right now it's quite ov- obvious to see because it's in a state of crisis. I mean, the, the, the real hope there for me is that those unbelievably stigmatising and punitive politics that accompanied austerity, Mm -hmm. yeah, that we saw in the mass production of poverty porn and all of that, the blaming of people for their own circumstances, that's not really... How how is that going to hold or work in the context of kind of mass unemployment? So so there is this kind of element of thinking if if the economy is crashing in the way we think it will crash now as we come out of this pandemic and move into this next phase. Those punitive types of cultural productions of blame and stigma can't quite work in the way that they did before because it's going to be in, it's going to have moved to people who would have been the hardworking taxpayer who get yeah. pulled in to unemployment, get pulled in to poverty. So something else will shift. I mean, there has to be some sort. We've seen the erosion of the welfare state down to what is its bare bones, yeah. Very little is left in terms of, like, the local welfare state anymore, especially very uneven geographically. But there are areas of the north that you can look at where, 
you know, our, our, the local authority is just in bankruptcy. Lancashire uh, City Council, uh, County Council, where I live, is, is, is facing bankruptcy. Cumbria, the next county council, looks facing bankruptcy. That they're literally facing bankruptcy. They've cut everything. They've sold everything they own, all the property that they own. The, the mate, you know, they've gone down to the skeletal bare bones, and now this pandemic's hit, and you just think that there will have to be some sort of new deal that emerges between citizens and the state. And that's where right. the activism now from below is critical. What does that new deal look like? You know, if it's a bailout for you know, Richard Branson's Virgin aeroplanes, then it's not any good for the future of this planet or this country, yeah? So it has to be that we, we, we're saying, what what do we want that transfer of wealth to look yeah. like? What do we want that redistribution to look like to make a, a, a fairer, more equal, but also a, a sustainable sort of society? Uh, I mean, there couldn't be more up for grabs, but it doesn't look good. Yeah. <laughs> the politics doesn't look good. Um, but yeah. the, it, at the same time, there is this hope because you're thinking, how are they going to govern this crisis? How are they going to govern this crisis, as Joe Hall would put it? It isn't completely clear because they've exhausted some of their tropes, uh, I think. When uh, Himiji said about the New Deal, so I can't remember the geezer's name, man. They're like, boom. I've, I read all these papers, but I can't remember the geezer's name. But he said about the New Deal, right? Actually, I, thought, I think I've sent you in a WhatsApp, I can't remember. But this idea that, so they're looking at, so they're going back to the idea, speaking of Bretton Woods Agreement and all these kind of things that are kind of around the kind of World War II, post-World War II, that, where you kind of get a reconfiguring after such trauma in Europe, the Depression, the stock market crash, World War One, Two, and all this kind of stuff. And there's, there's a sense that a new, there's a sense that they want big government now. The state needs to be involved. It needs to be bigger. I guess that's a, that change, that shift, and we kind of spoke about it earlier that the idea that when I when I was growing up, the kind of buzzword was there is no such thing as society, right? So, and I think for and I try to kind of put that in, in kind of pop culture terms. If you grew up in the eighties, like Harry Enfield, loads of money. I've got loads of money. That geezer, yeah. right? That naked individualism. But now Boris Johnson is telling you on TV that we are all in it together. There is society. So the idea that government is necessary is such an about face that it's. It's hard for people to grasp because, like, it, or believe. it gets murky. Or believe. Exactly. You know. Or believe, yeah. Um, Imogen. Don't believe a word of it. Thank you so, so much. Imogen, just before we go, right. what are you reading or what have you been reading and what are you listening to? Uh, I'm reading, I've just finished reading Exterminate the Brutes which is like, you'd really like it too, so it's by a Swedish writer. It's kind of like a a kind of historical take on colonialism in Africa, which is written like a travel log. It's very hard to describe, but it's kind of literature and history that I really enjoyed it. I thought it's really brilliant by Sven Lindquist. And I've just got this new book called The Global History of Runaways, which is uh, edited by Marcus Red Red Kier. Oh, brilliant. And that's what I'm going to read now. Brilliant. Uh, that's what I'm reading what at the moment. Listening I'm listening to Tyler, the Creator. Oh, nice. See the Imogen. How can you say you're not, you've never been called cool? Hey. You are the coolest. The coolest. It's my namesake. Cool. It's my namesake, isn't it? <laughs> it's my namesake. Hey, what? 
I do, I do like a bit of rap and a bit of grime, <laughs> and uh, yeah, but it's influenced by my children. <laughs> but yeah, Tyler the Creator, a bit, uh, bit of Earthquake wakes me up every morning at the moment. <laughs> T, what are you reading? What are you listening to? At the moment, I am going through The Prince with the kids, so... Who is The Prince? The oldest one's come to me with the a list. Oh, sorry, Machiavelli, Machiavelli is The Prince, right? So she has come with a list of her books, so... I've recommended, I'll put your book on there, Imogen, because she had Foucault's Discipline and Punish on there. So I said, okay, okay I can see where you're going. So yeah. we're going through those books. She's a, her discipline is the sciences, but I'm trying to say you need to ground it in the reality, like what's happened, because science presents itself as some abstract thing that is working for the good of humanity, but it's deeply entrenched in these kind of theories, right? So much, so, um, so much true there. T. So much true. So, um, yeah. Do you know what, right? Because I, anything, anything, well, anything I listen to is from about 1989 to 1994. So at the moment, it's my birthday coming up. So I'm listening to Frankie Knuckles Frankie Tears. Knuckles Boy, it takes me back. I, I'd, also re- <laughs> I'd also recommend Jar- Jarvis Cocker's Domestic oh, Disco. Yes, yes. Oh. On, on Instagram uh, every Saturday night. Uh, from nine yeah. till eleven, which is him. Really? It, yeah, it's really, really good mix oh, of music, and I have been dancing in lockdown. <laughs> in, in and who's the woman in Game of Thrones? The very tall Bring warrior the woman. Yeah, she's in it. She's in the disco. No like live. Really? Yeah. So you kind of I feel like... like you're in a disco with her. It's fantastic in what? his you living room. Just me you know what yeah. What's the Pulp album in 1994 that's got Common People on it? Different class, yes, yes. God, do you know what? Yeah, that's going to be on my listening to this week. Pulp, a different class. That whole album, definitely. And what I'm reading is I've just started Rainbow Milk by Paul Mendes. Brilliant. I've just started it. It's so, so good. Sounds Imogen, good. this has been brilliant. There's so many other things. I feel like I feel like the listeners are going to enjoy this episode, but equally they're going to be like, why didn't you ask her about this? Why did you ask her about this? Yeah, I, I feel like we've not probably started from no. what the book's about. So we might probably rewound and actually talked about what this book on stigma is about to because uh, to position it for the listener. But I guess they can go and find out, yes. can't they? Uh, there's a lot. Buy the book. Go buy the book. Go uh, buy the book. There's a long extract from the introduction uh, on my blog, yeah. stigmamachine.com. So, so people can have a look. All Imogen's that. links are in the episode notes, as well as our reading recommendations and some other links from Poverty Truth Commission as well. So we've yeah. got those links, which will yeah. be in the episode notes. But yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Imogen. Thank, thank, you. Imogen. thank you. Bye, Bye guys. guys. Love you. You have been listening to Surviving Society with Chantel and Tiso. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform.